Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, I am coming at you live from day three of a nasty-ass stomach flu. Uh, It has laid me up this weekend. So, unfortunately, I will not be answering a listener question. I started working on it, and I just couldn't finish. Uh, There also will be no ad for the patron-only episode. So, those of you who skip that, yeah, you don't have to. Um, But I think I can make it through this intro and a little bit of outro here. So... Today, we're talking about science, what science is, what science isn't, how to understand the various actors in the scientific world, and how all that might relate to Christian faith. We'll be hearing mostly from Adrian Wired, who you might remember all the way back from episode number two on theistic evolution. Adrian is a former computer programmer turned science and faith enthusiast, and I would say a lay expert. He's not a practicing scientist, but he does run counterbalance.org, a massive nonprofit website that's a resource for understanding science and how it relates to other aspects of life, including faith. He's also a friend of mine and someone that I trust not to simply be helpful scientifically, but as a person of deep Christian faith, I trust him to have Christian's best interests at heart. With Adrian, we're going to touch on the history of the science-faith dynamic, We'll try and understand what exactly science is and isn't, as well as how science is done and how the scientific community is structured. 
We'll talk about why some people don't trust science, as well as the actual limits of what science can or cannot do or say. We will also consider a surprising way in which the scientific approach is quite consonant with a Christian posture of life. But before we speak with Adrian, we're going to hear from Andy. Andy's a good buddy of mine, an evangelical pastor here in Seattle. You might also remember Andy from episode five on evangelism. Andy and I spend a lot of time chatting and debating with one another just in our general lives. And often the topics that I bring to the table are scientific ones that I think have important consequences to faith, but I tend to have a hard time convincing Andy of that importance. Andy is not anti-science, but from my perspective, he's fairly ambivalent about a lot of it. I don't think that that makes him an idiot or anything like that. I think that he approaches science from a pastoral perspective, and his conclusion is that basically most scientific questions have little impact on people's spiritual welfare. He also has some questions about the settled nature of certain scientific paradigms or theories and concerns about how much we should trust the popularizers of science. And I think that those are actually really good questions that a lot of people have. So we'll hear my short interview with Andy. Then we will unpack all this stuff with Adrian for a little over an hour. And after that, we would normally return back to Andy on an episode like this to get his take. But actually, Andy didn't really have much to say. I spoke with him in person. He said, that was great. Pretty much agreed. I didn't really have anything I felt like I needed to say. I don't know how much Adrian convinced him of some of the stuff that he uh, directly addressed. My experience with Andy is that I don't tend to convince him very often, but that might be because I'm not very convincing. So I don't know. But I'm grateful for Andy's time here at the beginning, especially sort of um, laying bare some of the ways that a lot of Christians in America, especially evangelicals, tend to think about this stuff. But not just evangelicals, a lot of just regular American folks as well. So we're going to hear from Andy, then Adrian, and that'll be that. Here I am with Andy. What aspects of science or the scientific consensus or whatever do you have no problem accepting? You just seamlessly accept them into your life. Science as an occupation or an education, I have no problem with at all. I think it's great. Uh, healthcare, you, you've had like heart work and stuff. So you obviously are very great. You don't have any problem Absolutely. trusting healthcare science or anything like that. Absolutely. Um, what areas do do, are you not so sure about in terms of what you consider to be the consensus view or when you read something you're not automatically in? Probably like pop science, popular science that sounds like there's an agenda behind it or trying to convince someone. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one that would be that for some reason seems to have an agenda would be like climate change. Now, mm-hmm. I, there's probably in my mind no question that the climate is changing. Yeah. But it sounds like there's a lot of agenda behind both climate change deniers as well as climate change, not advocates, you wouldn't call them advocates. Prophets or emissaries or ambassadors. And it it seems like it's hard to know what the truth is. But that doesn't mean, I'm not saying I know, I'm not a scientist. (laughs) <laughs> but you, but there's something about the way it's presented that makes you uh, skeptical. Correct. Yeah. Not skeptical that it's changing. Skeptical of 
the reasons that they're putting forth for why. Basically, how much can we trust spokesperson X? Correct. You and I, because we're friends, we end up talking a lot about sort of the overlap of science and the Christian life or science and theology. And I will present some. I will tell you, you know, the evidence is so strong for this or whatever. And generally your response is, okay, fine. I don't really care either way. Like, if we evolved from apes, if we didn't, it, at the end of the day, it really doesn't make a difference for my congregation, doesn't make a difference for me or maybe your kids, you might say. Right. Uh, talk a little bit about that. I have a saying that is not my own saying. Uh, I got it from a friend of mine, but the saying is, I am under no obligation to believe that. <laughs> so you okay now let, let me list a couple things and you tell me if you're under no obligation to believe them well, let's see if we can figure out where that line is sure so uh common descent between apes and humans from some common ancestor no obligation no obligation to directly believe it age of the universe or age of the earth any obligation to believe that no no whether vaccines work at a population level Yes. Yes. Okay. And why? Under obligation to believe that. I mean, how many people died of polio in the 19... A lot of people died of polio prior. A lot less people died of polio after. That, to me, speaks for itself. It's Mm -hmm. it's sort of in practice. So it's a practical... It's also... It also seems to be maybe practical effect on human welfare is a part of it. Absolutely. And you would say... Would you say that um, whether or not we evolved from a common ancestor or... Uh, the age of the universe is not an issue of common welfare? I would say so. Okay. I, I would think so. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I, now here's the thing. I think some people would look at, like, this, what was the space race and now ex- space exploration that same way. My One of my sister-in-laws thinks, let's st- who cares about exploring space? Let's fix stuff on Earth. To me, I think, hey, there could be things out there that could fix humanity hmm. I mean, there, whether it's new elements whether it's whatever it is hmm. great let's explore space there's nothing wrong with that it does cost a lot of money to explore space i'm sure but it's i mean it's exploration of our world that's important i think it's great the age of the earth is it is it going to help us to discover something maybe maybe not i don't it, it seems less important to me than the discovery of new things if a college freshman goes to a state school yeah. And they enter college with a firm belief in young earth creationism. Do you think that that is in any way a detriment to their life? Well, I guess it would depend on um, what they're going into. I, mm. If they're like going to become a geologist or something. Yeah. yeah. They might face some trouble. And okay, but but what about the fact that every kid has to take some science? I mean, like yeah. there's general ed requirements even for right. I had to take it as a philosophy major, right? Yeah. So I think it's good. I, I I think it's good. I think it's good to have to be able to if if you can and want to stand your ground on things, that's great. And learn how to graciously accept different points of view. You'll probably face some ridicule. Do you think that most people who raise their children to be young earth creationists do so in a spirit of charity or is it like, no, it's this or the whole thing falls apart? Um, I think the people who are dogmatic like that's probably more the latter. So there would be a difference between a kid who says, look, I just think this is the most likely situation and a kid who says it's either young earth creationism or the whole Bible's false. Yeah. There's a difference. Absolutely. Is that the main difference? Imagine three students. There's a dogmatic young earth creationist. These are all 18 year olds. There is an open-minded young earth creationist and then there is a Christian, you know, theistic evolutionist. In terms of 
how their life will be going forward and the effect it will have on their faith or their well-being. Got it. Is there a greater distance between the open-minded young earth creationist and the evolutionary Christian? Or is there a bigger difference between the open-minded young earther and the dogmatic young earther? They have the same view of origins, but they hold them in a different way. I think right. that most people would want to say there's a bigger difference between an evolutionist and a young earther. Right. But is the bigger difference actually the dogmatism versus the open-mindedness of right. the same set of beliefs? It's a good question. And I'm not entirely sure. I guess it depends on how closely they hold and how hard their worlds will be rocked yeah. if, if they were willing to be open. I mean, a lot of these things to me, we don't know. These are things that people have been arguing about for mm-hmm. years, if not centuries really and i don't know if those things are going to be solved i mean their science could i guess could one day solve them i mean i think people now even now there's some on the left and the right of this issue who may think they are solved mm-hmm. i don't know if we have the actual evidence i mean you know like even things like carbon dating to my understanding is a loosely held though guarded but loosely held way of dating that I'm aware of. Do you believe that the universe is older than 10,000 years? I, I couldn't say with certainty. Is that because you don't care either way? Maybe. Maybe. I, I mean, I, I, I honestly have not read. I mean, I, you know, I, I went to high school now this next year, 30 years ago. Yeah. You know, we learned when I was in school carbon dating. It, to me, the carbon dating thing is almost like which side your baby sleeps on. You know, in the 1990s, your kids, when they're born, they sleep on their side. Otherwise, they'll die of SIDS. Yeah, yeah. Then in like 2002, it switched to the back. Yeah. 2003, it switched to the stomach. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it switches. Yeah. Science so you, says it switches every year. So your understanding of carbon dating is that it is not that settled. My understanding of carbon dating is that it's not that settled. Do you ever worry that you will learn something from science that will challenge or disprove one of your religious beliefs? No. Okay, that was my time with Andy. And now we will go to the main bulk of the conversation, which is with Adrian Wired. And we're going to hear how he thinks of science and how he thinks of science and faith. And there's so much good stuff in here. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So, Adrian, these days, it's common to see or to feel some kind of conflict or antipathy between science and religion. And we're going to talk more about why that is. But first, I just want to ask, has it always been that way or is that kind of new? It has changed. It's hard to answer these really broad categories. But if we talk about modern science in the West, we do characterize that more recently by some of the more brash science popularizers. We might point to Richard Dawkins. And, you know, he's known for being antagonistic to religion. Yeah, it's one of the ways he sells books. It is one of the ways he sells books and and others, too. It's just harder to sell books that are sort of conciliatory in that in that regard. But once again, if we constrain our little conversation to Western modern science, then you sort of have to acknowledge that the original people who brought modern science into being were <laughs> were, were Christians. So uh, Clergy, um, usually, right? Were, 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 yes, indeed. Often. And Darwin himself was originally training to be a clergyman. Newton, especially, is, is extremely devout people. And you can name almost any of the major fathers, because they were male, generally speaking. Then yeah. 
you'll find that the assumption, the working assumption, the worldview was that the Christian perspective was the, the backdrop to everything they did. So there was no conflict there at all. When Origin of Species came out and in the ensuing decades, there were quite a few official positions by denominations and plenty of popular theologians and preachers who saw no conflict. Is that right? Yes, the response was mixed initially. Anyone will agree, you know, the, his ideas were not immediately that easy to grasp and a little controversial. So there was a real diversity of opinion. And it was immediately apparent that there would be implications for theological concerns that, that came along with that. But plenty of people said, even though there are going to be these concerns, these are not disqualifying for Christian doctrine. There was not a straight line. No, not the way that we sort of picture it now. Moving on from history to geography, the way that the science and faith conflict is talked about in the United States, is that unique or is that how it is everywhere else in the world? It does change as you go around the world. It's probably just a little bit extreme over here. For example, the if you want to characterize the conflict as most starkly epitomized by the Young Earth Creationist Movement in the US, which is you know, very powerful and very developed, you can find that in Australia. You can find it in the UK to some large extent too. But if you go across to continental Europe, there's general less time in the day, I think, for religious concerns, so the conflict is less. And of course, if you do go out wider than the European and Christian side of things, you go across to Asia, then you have a very long-lived history of sort of the scientific aptitude and the scientific type questions being right alongside spiritual concerns. Talk a little bit about more of that. What's that relationship like in Asia? Well, if you have religious, there's a multiplicity of religions that, that you know, obviously are in place there. And there are many conceptions that just don't have a direct conflict with um, religious notions the way that we would have in the West. If you picture, you know, a traditional view of Western Christianity as uh, someone who's performing miracles right in front of you and could do so at any moment, and you could witness these things, then that's more of a that's a different conception to the idea that living in harmony with nature is, in point of fact, a something that has a scientific dimension and a spiritual dimension also. Who is an example of someone in the United States today that challenges this default paradigm of essential conflict between faith and science? Well, there are a number of working scientists who don't see a conflict in this sort of very simplistic Dawkinsian way that we do. But there's no harm in trotting out Francis Collins, I think. Yeah. So tell us about Francis Collins. <laughs> well, he has all the, the credentials um, necessary. Certainly is a well-respected scientist. He actually headed up the Human Genome Project and now heads the National Institutes for Health. And the National Institutes for Health, for people who don't know, that's like the Supreme Court of... <laughs> yes. Yeah. It is the largest sort of government-funded organization for doing research of that kind. And he has written a uh, well-liked book called The Language of God. And in that, he gives his accounting of how he sees science and his faith in harmony and gives the story of his coming to faith. Now, he, he did not come from a Christian family. He actually was an atheist growing up. So he, he was by conscious intellectual effort that he came to decide to ally himself with Christian theology. So Francis Collins... You know, he is part of heading up, mapping the human genome for the very first time. So as a Christian, 
He's looking at the genome. How is he Christianly interpreting this data that he's seeing, that people are seeing for the first time? The title of his book helps us uh, see things the way he sees them. You know, DNA, it's just chemicals. It's just uh, four nucleotides strung out endlessly. But if you look at it from the perspective of Francis Collins, what you're looking at is the history of God's creation throughout deep time. So you're actually almost peering over the shoulder of this long, long perspective. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to get into, into, into the mind of God. But yeah. in some small way, when you look at DNA heritage, that's what you're seeing across the millions of years. Which is why he calls it the language of God. It's right. like a bit of decoding the language that God speaks in. If we, we might think of Genesis, God spoke and there was life. God spoke and there were the animals. It's like, what did he speak? He spoke this, genetics, genes. Yeah, that's right. I want to talk about some reasons that Christians or people in general might distrust science. And first, I'd like to talk about some reasons that we might consider to be bad reasons. And then later, I want to get to some of the reasons that I find more plausible and and more difficult. We might call them good reasons, (laughs) good reasons to worry. So let's go through some of these one at a time. One reason that people might be skeptical is that they have a prior commitment to creation science. We might say there are some reasons for that, but it's sort of like assuming your opponent is wrong before you start debating them, right? So if they have a prior commitment to creation science, first of all, what is creation science? How would you describe that? And why do people become committed to this before looking at any actual evidence? Well, creation science, we can sort of summarize is the idea that you can um, be a good scientist by taking the data from the Bible to be part of your repertoire of ideas. So if you start off with the commitment to Scripture being God-breathed, then you should expect there to be data in there that you could apply alongside your measurements. And the expectation is that you will find scientific evidences for commitments that Christians hold. For example, the interpretation of Genesis literally to be seven days, you would expect if that's in the Bible, that's now data that you can add and then look at the geological record or or, uh, other scientific data and expect to find some sort of mutual reinforcement there. And this is different than regular science because, correct me if I'm wrong, in regular science, you have a hypothesis and then you just go get empirical data and you try and prove or disprove the hypothesis, and the text of the book of Genesis does not count as empirical data, one way or the other. Yeah, it, it's you can argue it's less simple than that. You'd have to admit that there are very few scientific questions anyone asks that doesn't come preloaded with a few sure. commitments. But I think the question I'm getting at is, what counts as data? Yeah, yeah. There's very few physicists or you know, uh, biologists who would take a text as data. But if you happen to know, if someone were to walk in the room now with some text that we, they said, trust us, this is, this is, you had some reason to believe it, then we would work with that. And that, that's the way that the vast majority of Christians will take the, the Bible to have that kind of authority. And so it's a reasonable thing to then add that to other endeavors as we try and understand the world, and that includes the sciences as 
practiced by non-Christians. And this, this has been a project which has been underway for a very long time. And if you paint it in the terms I have done, you can see how that is a pretty worthy endeavor. You know, and there's not too much to criticize there. But I think the time is passing by where that research project needs to show some fruit. I see. The problem is not for you that creation science exists. It's a perfectly reasonable place to start to say, I have a hypothesis. It's based on scripture. Let's see if we can prove it. But it's been going on long enough and the evidence is very against it being true. Well, I would say so. I would say so. What you're left with is the appeal that a success in this endeavor would right. would, would come Which with. is my next question, which is why do people have this pre-commitment to it? Well, if it turns out there are scientific evidences for claims in the Bible or the claims of you know, the pastor in the pulpit, then that would be an easy way to convince people of everything else you have to say. Mm. And so as an evangelical tool, it's extremely desirable. If you could show... The Bible is a true and sure foundation for all kinds of claims, and here's a bunch of scientific evidence, so then we can trust it on all these other things, how incredibly helpful and convincing that would be. Yes, and it's interesting to to place this in a evolving sort of social backdrop, because I think the potential heyday for that kind of evangelical approach is gone. I think if you head back to maybe... The seventies or the sixties, where we, if if someone came on the TV screen in a white coat and said, "I am a scientist by this shampoo," mm. you went out and did it. You just huh. you just trusted it, and so the the measure of a credible statement of any kind was if it was scientific, scientific, then then it suddenly got elevated. I think we're we're no longer it's no longer that straightforward. The problem for you is not so much that someone has a, a theory they'd like to prove from scripture. We might imagine someone saying, hey, I think that human beings all experience free will. Let's look for something in quantum theory that would account for indeterminacy of a future moment. That We, we would say there's nothing wrong with that. That's a perfectly good reason to look for indeterminacy in the quantum world because, yeah, people experience – they seem to think they have choice and free will and stuff. So that's not the problem. So the problem is just it hasn't borne fruit, and it's been a while. Well, yeah, that's right. The particular questions that they hoped to be able to find evidence for, it hasn't been forthcoming. And the evidence against those claims has been stacking up? Is that what you would say? I would say that, yes, yes. So so uh, you can see the appeal. At its core, the motive seems just completely laudable. I mean, if you are at the end of the day, a person that has a religious commitment, and especially in the West, in the yeah. Christian West, we're talking about uh, scripture being part of your uh, tool set, right. that, that scripture better have something to say about the real world. Yeah, it's, it feels like people saying, hey, we would like to do some studies, and people have done these studies. We're going to have people pray 30 minutes a day, meditating on a loving God, and we're going to see if it makes them into different people. And, and you find... You might find that it does, right? And then, right. and that's perfectly reasonable because I pray. I find that it turns me into a better person. Would be great to show that that's true for other people. We don't have a problem with the motivation behind creation science. You just you have a problem with the results. Yeah, yeah. I also would challenge the even underlying motive to persuade people through 
numerical measurement. Just the it's a very recent cultural situation in the West where the person in the street has demanded scientific-like evidence in order to convince them. Throughout the history of you know Christendom and religion before that, people were not convinced ever by scientific arguments. There have been, I mean, it changes across in different culture. I mean, there was a time, especially if you go across to the, well, I'm going to generalize dreadfully, but in broadly speaking, in, in the Jewish and Islamic spheres, then standards of jurisprudence and just like, like just uh, expressing things in terms of logical and legal language was most impressive to a certain context. As opposed to scientific. As opposed language, to scientific. Yeah. And I think today, the thing that is most persuasive to most people is personal testimony. And just sort of a whole person accounting. Now, it's easy to be deceived by strong personalities, but it's it's certainly you know, something I pay attention to. Yeah. Oh, I, I feel that. I mean, when I meet or – like I watched the, the Mr. Rogers documentary and I just said I, I, that's what I want to be like. I mean, mm-hmm. I just want to be like that whole person. And Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers may have had some various arguments for various things he believed, but the most persuasive argument is – it led him to live that life, which I found just gorgeous and worthy of emulation. Maybe there's a problem in, that you're saying in terms of the angle of creation science is like, well, we're going to get you to believe by making these arguments rather than – or I, I suppose they would say alongside, we're going to get you to believe by showing you our lives. And you would just say just the latter. Especially now that the, now that the the time is sort of running out for any kind of really really uh, good fruit, if you spend time trying to convince children that the speed of light has been decreasing, right, as opposed to you know being a a great dad or a great uh, friend to people, I wonder if that time is lost. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to get to this later in this interview. But what are we setting our kids up for if we're wrong about that stuff? Mm. In the meantime, let's keep going with some of these, what we might call bad reasons to mistrust science. The next one is someone might worry that what they learn from science will challenge some of their theological beliefs. We might say this is essentially fear as a motivator. Um, On the face of it, that seems like a bad reason, right? To say, I don't want to learn the truth things because I'm afraid of what I'll find. I mean, do you have any anything else to say about that, or is it just self-explanatory? That's right. I mean, I think if you if you do trust that science is going to give you some truth that you choose not to hear, then that's a troubling road to be going down. I, I, I where does that end? You end up just being self-deceived. I think. Now, there's a related fear that I think actually is a is a bit more interesting, and that's the worry that the scientific community contains a bunch of non-Christians. And on certain views within Christianity, certain versions of Christianity, reason is so wholly corrupted by sin that only once you have Christ's grace can you actually see the world as it really is. And therefore, if you have let's if 90% of astrophysicists are not Christians, then we should really doubt the claims of astrophysics. What would you say to that fear? Well, that's a that's a sort of a testable hypothesis. You know, if, if how do you uh, mean? Well, if if uh, non Christian scientists aren't able to get accurate measurements, for example, then they shouldn't be very good at their jobs. You mean it would 
it would show up in the literature like why are all these christians so much better scientists <laughs> you you would hope or something yeah i think so okay that makes sense so if you were going to have this worry you'd need to add another layer which is there's kind of a mass delusion of the entire scientific community in somehow not seeing that these results are tainted or not repeatable or whatever and we're going to we're going to get into some of what what you'd have to believe because we're going to talk about the mechanisms of how science is done but maybe just say a little bit about that well this is you know i mean not not to make too much fun of it but this is this is a live currently held view in in the creation science movement that unless you are filled with the holy spirit you will not be able to see through the microscope clearly i mean people do hold that belief that's a little bit wacky but the one which is far more credible is the idea that your worldview as a scientist is going to constrain the kind of research that you do and that that's sure. that's unambiguously true it will also the culture you find yourself in will provide funding opportunities for different lines of research so there is every reason to believe that science as practiced is only asking a fraction of the questions they're only building instruments that detect you know answers to those questions those so, questions yeah so you, you there, there there's um there's some meat there. So yeah, so that worry gets into some of what we'll talk about, which is what are the limitations of science and what ought we to be skeptical about in particular. And that's why I, I liked that fear a bit more. But the very presence of non-Christians seems to be not a sufficient reason to distrust swaths of uh, evidence or interpretation of that evidence. Uh, no, I'll take good data and from wherever it comes. <laughs> so... One more concern, and this is one that Andy expressed earlier, and this is one that I actually find very plausible and worrisome myself. It seems like the popular science writers of our day, previous days, previous generations, change their minds so frequently that if you're just reading you know, the New York Times or something, the science section, you, if you do that for 30 years, you might reasonably conclude you ought not to take much of this too seriously. You know, Andy gave the example of turning your baby over. Well, your baby's supposed to sleep on its side. And then a few years later, your baby's supposed to sleep on its stomach. And then your baby's supposed to sleep on its back. Well, which is it? <laughs> you know, and so mm -hmm. how much of that is going on? What do, you, what do you say to that? Yeah, I think you can just say yes and, right? Um, you don't see all of scientific knowledge repeated every week in the New York Times. So the number of things that don't change are staggeringly huge and not newsworthy. Interesting. Yeah, I mean the the thing that's almost embarrassing at this point is is Einstein's equations. You can even sense a uh, frustration within the scientific community because they keep building bigger telescopes and bigger instruments and trying to trying to break it, trying to find some new twist. He's that will, just still right, and he's just we we didn't need to do this. He just told us a hundred years ago. You know, it's uh, it's just embarrassing. It's just getting dull. You know, that actually reminds me of something that we've pursued a little bit on Depolarize, my other podcast, and something I've done some reading about. It's called the availability heuristic. And it's the reason that people get so wound up about terrorism, for instance, but not so much about issues that affect them far more often. It's the reason that people get so afraid for their kids to play in their neighborhood unsupervised, even as child abductions are drastically lowered. It's mm -hmm. that the more we hear about something, the more we see something the more likely we think it is to happen and the more common we think it is. And so you end up, you know, for instance, in the 2016 election, 89% of the voters cited terrorism as 
a major issue in the election. And in 2015, 14 people died from terrorism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, there might be some other reasons for it to be an important issue, but 14 is not very many people. Right. I mean, a million people died of heart disease or car accidents or something that year. Right. And and there were 600,000 abortions that year. Mm. These seem to be far more prevalent questions, but terrorism is in the news all the time. Right. Child abductions, when they happen, are weeks long stories. Is it is there a bit of that going on that we just hear about the changes so much more than we hear about the continuity? There are many factors, honestly. Uh, That's certainly part of it. And that the things which are more likely to get published are human interest stories. Like if it Mm. turns, I mean, the safety of a child is, 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 you know, that makes everybody anxious. And so if there's, if there's even a fractional, a study anywhere published that may lead you to, to save the life of a child or something, then boy, let's publish that thing. And of course it's, well, let's popularize it at least. Even if it was in the journal, let's say the, I don't know, don't know this work at all, but let's say it was, it may not have been published in the top line journals. And it may have been published with all kinds of caveats in the long actual paper itself, all of which gets edited out. Yeah, people just take that one paragraph abstract. And And so that's not really the fault of the sciences or the researchers. That's the fault of you and I who, you know, and the newspaper salespeople, really. Well, I mean, climate change models are, you know, one that's definitely should come up. You know, the predictions that we make about what is likely to happen to the climate, given the current state of industry... This is vitally, vitally important. But also, how many models are there and how long have they been tested? Not very long. Uh, That's right. Right. And and the the number of factors that can influence that. So So many variables. Would it be better to say nothing or would it be better to say something and then retract it, you know, uh, two years down the road? Right. There's a moral question there. yeah, Yeah, for sure. Well, all of this is a perfect bridge to what I want to discuss next, which is what science actually is, what scientists do. And how that information percolates in that community, how it gets disseminated to the general population, et cetera. I think that understanding all of this helps us a lot more understand what to trust and what the levels of confidence ought to be for what. So let's start, though, with just a definition of science. What is science, Adrian? Well, thank you for asking. (laughs) Um, And I'm happy to give you a short answer Please. But only if I can then muddy the waters intolerably. Uh, Okay, yeah, do what you got to do. The general view of science as the pursuit of objective descriptions about the physical world. Yeah. That's verifiable, ideally falsifiable, probably measurable. You know, we uh, differential equations, gosh, E equals MC squared, F equals MA. those, Those are prototypical sort of scientific statements. Yeah. And yet, I would really push back even on the question. Science is not a single thing. Hmm. They are the sciences, and they are practiced by people which have different methods. But Um, that first definition you gave is, what, close to true? That it's it's basically the search for falsifiable formulas about empirical data or something like that. An easier question for me to get behind is, are there questions which are scientific and those which are not? Okay, that's and nice then you can it. grade those on a curve. And, okay, and and, and and if you find someone who works all day with one with questions which are clearly scientific, they would be a scientist and they would be doing mm-hmm. science. Okay, so give me an example of a question that is clearly a scientific one, clearly not, and then one that's blurring the lines a bit. 
Um, let's see. I suppose astronomy. Like if you wanted to search a re- region of the sky for a for a star and then characterize its spectra, characterize its science. Yeah, that's that's those numbers, baby. Yeah. You know, okay. Yeah. And we're wa- wavelengths. It's it's this this uh, wavelength of light is emitting at this rate or whatever. Yeah. 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 And you can you can then. Tell you roughly uh, how old it is, what yeah. uh, what class of star it is. You can classification is another hallmark of things which are scientific. Yeah, and there are there are very few questions we can ask which can't be sort of shoehorned into some sort of scientific mold. Mm-hmm. But by the same measure, there are most many scientific questions um, <laughs> which really do depart that pretty quickly. Okay, so give, give, what's, give us an example of an obviously non-scientific question. Uh, does my wife love me? Yeah, Something yeah. Like that? Well, that 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 that's, that would yes, that's a fine example. Um, that class of questions. It's it's a good example of what I just said. Is it possible if I had a you know sure if someone offered me a billion dollars, say, can you develop a scientific yeah. test to develop? You know, it uh, actually it reminds me of a fantastic episode of Nathan for You on Comedy Central which is a show I love very much where he's this deadpan comedian and he's his character is trying to prove scientifically that he's a fun guy <laughs> because people have told him he's not. Mm-hmm. So he <laughs> he finds this guy on Craigslist who just wants to hang out platonically and he takes urine and blood samples of him before and after they've done a bunch of things together and measures his dopamine and serotonin levels. There you go. So technically, does this am I fun or did this guy have fun with me? You could – that's partly a scientific question. It is. It is. If he had fun, then the serotonin goes up. And if my wife loves me, in some sense we could – there are ways you could say, well, does she feel X when I walk into the room? Well, that could be quantified. But the question, mm. will my wife stick by me or mm-hmm. is her devotion to me solid? Those are not really – that's hard to imagine how you could answer that empirically. Well, what you have to do is you have to be honest and put enormous error bars, uh, giant on, error bars on yeah. everything. And yeah. and at some point, you do just go home. And you're like, these error bars are so big, we may as well have not bothered asking the question. And error bars is meaning just for people who aren't familiar with that phrase, it's the the width between the pot. Like it's like when you poll, when mm. they're polling, they'll say we think it's thirty nine percent. But it's plus or minus two and a half percent given our sample size. That's Those right. are the error bars. That's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. I want to know step by step how science gets done, like from hypothesis through peer review and publishing of a paper, and then through I guess beyond that is papers that collate papers mm-hmm. into some unified theory. Mm-hmm. So just start at the top. A scientist gets an idea. To do science. In almost all of these questions, it's worth talking about the idealized version and the, what happens in practice. Sure, sure. And so the, the idealized version is that you have an existing body of knowledge of a field that's found in journals. You know, prominent ones are Nature and Science magazine. And you read a, a journal article and you go, that's not right. Hmm. And you set about uh, showing that to be in error in some ways. Mm. And you convince yourself and maybe your team that you have results. And you then submit a paper which adds to that. Probably doesn't contradict it all the way, but it certainly supplements. It finds some outlier. it or something. Yeah. 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 And then you would uh, submit that to perhaps the journal where it was published. 
you would cite that article and that your experimental data and conclusions would be reviewed anonymously by people who know something about that field yep. to make sure you're just not making stuff up. And if you pass that peer review, your article will be published in that journal. And, and now, then someone else will see it and maybe have their own and, process. And yeah. there is this network built up of, right. of, of interrelated claims that if you step back, builds out what you know we might call the storehouse of human knowledge. That is provisional, but the more things that connect different results to each other, the more confidence you might have that they are going to stick around. So basically, the type of knowledge we get from science is antithetical to the type of knowledge that a fundamentalist would hope to get from, say, the Bible or the Quran or something. What a fundamentalist wants is, it says this, I know this is the right interpretation of that, and we are locked in, and I should never change my mind on this for the rest of my life because I've got it perfect right now. Whereas science is always somewhat tentative depending on – there's varying levels of it depending on how much evidence there is. You know, speed of light, we have a whole lot of evidence now, but we didn't at one point. Right. And and so at whatever point you happen to be, all these scientific propositions you hold, you have to hold them with some degree of certainty never quite reaching 100%. Is that right? Uh, that's the idealized version. <laughs> okay. In, in practice, people operate, scientists operate, well, I'll say it, in, in the same way that fundamentalists do. And isn't, are you, aren't you getting into what people talk about as paradigm shifts within the scientific world? You'll, there'll be sort of a breaking point and then a new generation will start disproving this old generation and they'll fight tooth and nail for the old version and they kind of have to die, and then now we all sort of know the new paradigm. There's some of these I'm not human sure things they have to die. But, I mean, but they, some people will say you just—they all just have to die, or lose their chairmanships, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. they have to go away in some ways. But how? Okay, I just said that kind of silly, but in your own words, what? How would you describe this process? Well, there's there's two slightly different but related phenomena. One one is, as you say, there is the there are the paradigms which are very fashionable and not just fashionable for no reason. There's just a, a huge body of evidence that has made them fashionable for the moment and they may shift. But much like a self-described fundamentalist of any religious stripe will have identified these fundamentals because they're distinct from the rest, right? From the rest where there's some play. And so a fundamentalist will say, these are the things are non-negotiable. And they may be very angry if you challenge that. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a smaller set of things. And we do find that's true in the sciences too because there is an expectation that there are laws of nature which mm. are inviolable. And we do believe there are physical constants, like the speed of light being one of them, that are not likely that, you know, we're at the point, they're, put, they're so far put to bed that no one's really questioning them. And so they do function roughly in the same way that sort of fundamental religious concepts do for, for fundamentalist believers. So one of the paradigm shifts that I've heard of as an example many times is the, the shift from Newtonian physics to quantum physics, which as I understand it is sort of like Newtonian plus quantum. It's like Newtonian works at this big level, but it doesn't work all the way down. And it took a long time to convince physicists that this was the case. Can you can you walk us through what happened there? Yeah, it's another fine example. I mean, you can also relate Einstein into that same uh, yeah. it's, it's sort of a triplet that the laws of motion. You know, like if you if you throw a ball in a gravity field on Earth, it'll follow 
you know, an arc, a parabola, uh, and it'll come back to Earth, and we can predict where it will land based on... If there's on, no friction, things yeah. keep going the same, like in space, like in the movie Gravity. Like in the movie. Once you're outside the atmosphere, it just goes and will spin and whatever, until something else acts upon it. And, These and, kind of things. And just a few differential equations, courtesy of Newton, will describe arbitrarily complicated yeah. situations for most cases. But it turns out, not all cases. There are fringe outlier cases when you talk about very very small distances yeah. or very very fast velocities in the case of yeah. einstein where newtonian those equations are a first approximation but they're not actually accurate to the nth decimal place yeah and so that's a that's a paradigm shift uh, in as much as the fundamental reality is understood to be non-newtonian if the subject of your research is is particles, atomic particles, yeah, then Newtonian me- mechanics is of no use to you. Not going to work. Not used nope. to you, yeah. And uh, quantum mechanics is an interesting case because a hundred years now after the, these difficulties were first uncovered, there is no consensus on exactly how to describe what's going on. There are a number of competing models. And there are still people who are holding out for some sort of more Newtonian perspective. Interesting. Yeah. So we are still in the middle of that paradigm shift, you could say. We are. But what's important to say is, despite that uncertainty and differences of opinion, quantum mechanics, in terms of its utility, is beyond question. Most of our microelectronics depend upon mm. quantum mechanical descriptions of, uh, of electrons. And the fact that there's an ongoing debate on quite how to in- interpret it and describe it doesn't mean that it's not legit. Now, let's go back through all of these processes, but let's use an example of a hoax. Mm. Uh, so if you have a better hoax in mind, that's fine. But I was thinking there was that autism vaccine story. Yeah, yeah. That might be a good one where the guy later admitted to fabricating the data. But how did that go? So it went through all the channels. Mm -hmm. Well, the the autism study is is a fine example, a very sad example of how the idealized version of science, which I'll, you know, continue to cheerlead for, is corruptible. And sometimes just for personal gain and sometimes just human foibles get in the way. So this is a study done over in England by Andrew Wakefield, who in theory, he purported to have found a link between the MMR, measles, mumps and rubella vaccine and autism in children. Diagnosis of autism is on the rise. Yeah. And it's very uh, scary. Very People, scary yeah. indeed. And if there's anything we could do that would give us any kind of leg up on right. resolving that, then surely... We should, you know, try that avenue. The so he published an article with co-writers, co-authors, that showed a link between the MMR vaccine and autism spectrum disorder. So that's first line of defense. The co-authors could have challenged his data, or did they? Did they? Did he get the data? Did they? Like, how did that work? There are big books written on this, and I don't want to tell you I'm an expert on it, but uh, let me just guess is that this was such a an interesting area. There's a Nobel Prize on down this right, right. If if he's right, that's that's so just so massive. coming coming on the coattails of this research sure. is something that a lot of people would want to do. Mm-hmm. I I cannot tell you that's what happened, but he had right. many, many co authors. It, it was a hoax. Uh, he had fabricated the information. This, so okay, this. so he's got the co authors, they send it into a journal and someone's like, This is interesting. Yeah. It gets published in the But now before it gets published it has to get reviewed. 
Yeah. So this is the second line of defense is the anonymous reviewers. Yes. Now they're anonymous, so they wouldn't be getting the credit like the co-authors would That's right. of the Nobel. So how do they fail to check this? Or is it just that he has built up credibility and in this one case he's lying or what what went on there? Well, there's there's two ways that a article may get finally retracted. One is that the methods uh, can be shown by these peer reviews to be incorrect. For example, if you supply raw data and uh, you then you know, show a graph <laughs> uh, from it and the reviewers run the numbers and get a different result. A different graph. Different yeah. graph. Then they, that, that they'll stop that publication there and then. Yeah. But if you fabricate the raw data... Harder to see. Harder to see. Well, they wouldn't see it. They, yeah. they, they get the same result. And so, they, the, so the peer reviewers at the journal level, they're not expected to go and collect all the same data. That's right. That, right. That, that would, would be... You'd have to wait for someone else... Yeah, that'd be question, too long. Question yeah. the journal article once it's published. Okay. And okay, so, so it is common that articles get published probably by with bad data or bad models, but then they get challenged. That's right. Generally speaking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then it gets published. Yes. And then does he it gets, get picked up upon immediately and spread here and there, or what, what happens? Well, yes, obviously, well-meaning parents of all kinds would, uh, would jump on this, because once we, as we've said before... Jenny McCarthy. Jenny McCarthy is one, <laughs> that it, yeah. it's, if it has the gloss of science in a, in a well-respected journal, things, generally speaking, published there, you can, you can rely upon. And so any number of people who have had suspicions... But were unable to really, you know, go anywhere with that. And now have something to go on. And, and of people he, who are worried about autism are, I mean, understandably, would like anything yes. that they can start working on, right? Because it is so scary and unknown and whatever. You, well, we understand that. You understand that, and of course, there is the financial motivation too. Uh, what came to light after the fact is that from before. The article was even submitted. Wakefield was in the process of setting up to sue vaccine manufacturers. Wow. So in some ways, this is a good example. In some ways, it's not. It's a good example of good oldie-timey oldie fraud with a gloss of you know, messing with the scientific processes along the way. A better example may have been somebody who unconsciously cherry-picked data. Through some kind of bias that they're unaware of. Yeah. Yes, because they really wanted to you know, believe that we could get ahead of autism mm. now as opposed yeah, to waiting later. for some other yeah. study. And the, the study was unbelievably small. I think it was under 20 kids. Oh, wow. Before we're done with this, so the paper comes out. Yes. Popular science writers start writing about it and, and parents find out about it or whatever and start moving. But surely some people were also skeptical. And so what did they start doing? Start trying to replicate the data, doing their own studies. I mean, so how did the ball unravel to where he eventually was forced to admit that he had falsified the data? What Do you remember the process? Uh, I think it happened through a number of threads. A good summary is that many people read The Lancet. And he had not given a direct causal relationship between MMR. And it was they, only correlation. They wanted to take this research to the next level. And so they started doing studies that would uh, help them uncover the causal mechanism. And that's when the data starts not to match up. Couldn't find it. So what's interesting to me about this story is it is both a story of how someone hacked the prestige of the scientific process, mm. made a big name for himself, potentially helped himself in a lawsuit tangentially, 
But then it was also the scientific process that brought him to heal. Just it took some time. Yes, yes. And unfortunately, in that interval is when you get the spreading of this theory. Yes, yeah. And it's still with us today, of course. Right, it is, yes. So this is a good bridge to my next question, which is tell us about all the various actors in the scientific community. You, you have a, an analogy that you, you like to use, which is like seminary professors and preachers, <laughs> right? So can you break down that analogy and just kind of tell us who are the various levels of actors in, you know, from anonymous guy in a lab coat all the way to Richard Dawkins or Bill Bryson or whoever? Yeah, th- this is just a... You know, straightforward acknowledgement that there are different roles and different um, means uh, of effectively communicating at the different levels, and there's room for bad actors across across all of this. Right. But but at a minimum, the kind of person who's going to be able to write a credible, easily to interpret a journal article may not necessarily have the skills that would make that those results understandable by people in the streets. The, the the popular science writers are the pastors, yeah, and yeah. the scientists are the seminary professors, That's or, right. who are who are doing the research. They're the archaeologists or whatever, <laughs> right? And they have the time to add all the disclaimers, which is pivotal if you're expecting your listeners to then go ahead and do follow-on research because mm. you need to give them everything they need to know to not repeat what you've done. Or, or it's or the to... difference between a heavily footnoted or endnoted book. And just a popular book with no footnotes. Right. The the one with all the footnotes is so that, hey, someone else at this level, if you're going to undertake a book like this or write a paper about this kind of thing, here's all my sources. And that's very different than reading a Donald Miller book or, a, you know, just like some popular Joyce Meyer or yes, Max yeah. Lucado book, right? <laughs> sure. But there, but there is a, there is a role for advocacy, but it comes, sure. comes with you know major responsibility because you you can consciously or or, or uh, unconsciously you know deceive people so and, when andy is expressing concern about the science writers that he's reading he doesn't he's he doesn't subscribe to science or nature journal he's these are the pastors these are the popularizers mm-hmm. and they do have a different set of uh, motivations and sometimes incentives yeah. than the scientists have. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, there is a continual line between the popularizers of science to all the way out to, you know, popular, you know, or, or fiction writers. I mean, these are people who are making a living selling books. Sure. And catering to particular audiences may be a way of uh, upping sales, being more sensationalist in your claims. There are all, all, all these uh, pressures are there if, you're, if your goal is simply to increase of viewers or readers or, or that right. kind of thing. So if I want to say, for instance, to a listener, you have permission to take science more seriously, I should not mean by that you should just start picking up anything in the science section at the bookstore and assuming that if it's written for a lay audience that it's unvarnished truth. That's true, yes. But there are, you know, all hope is not lost. I mean, right. th- th- there's, there's some very simple things you can do. You can um, sometimes authors make it rather clear who their audiences are. And the first thing you should do is is find something written to someone unlike you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also perhaps read two popular books on the same subject. Yeah, that maybe have diverging views. There is a bit more work to be done in some of these areas than, for instance, if I wanted to read a book about baseball. It's true, but you know, if these if the, these people, there are plenty of very good science writers. And, yeah. uh I mean, let, let's not 
miss the opportunity to call out Richard Dawkins for his clear writing. Mm. Plenty of, that I would say differently, but you know, I, I do remember just being just stopping mid chapter, going, "That is a masterful piece of communication." Mm. Well, he so Dawkins is a good bridge to my next question as well, which is because though Dawkins and many people have told me how good of a writer he is, and that he has been quite a good biologist as well. I would say he obviously goes beyond the limits of what science can say or can do and extrapolates positions of a kind of a faith and then uses science selectively. And also he certainly reads religious texts selectively to argue for his his particular brand of uh, atheism. So what isn't science, right? Where is the line between a popularizer who's still talking about science and, and someone who goes beyond what science can actually do. Well, it's rather sad news because there's, there's very little in a popular book that will be really science. That's actually science, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. if the hallmarks of the more scientific claims are differential equations and repeated studies um, and you know, measurable, measurable results. Yeah. So what you have to do is, is make sure that you get m- you know, multiple sources and ideally find somebody. I mean, this is why Richard Dawkins is, is, is helpful because we know who he is. We know what his, his angle is. Like if you get on your scales at home, uh-huh. uh, that there is a, you know, it's going to be a tear button. A, a tear oh, setting. it's like leveling out the scale. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, and there's no scale in the world that will actually give you the, the mass of something straight up. You have to subtract exactly the known inbuilt bias when i when i step on my scale it says give me a second i'm going to get down to zero that, that it's that's tearing itself that's what yeah. it's doing yeah okay and so just because someone or has a bias doesn't necessarily mean you can't get accurate data from that following this by analogy but and the more the more richly you understand what their biases are the more easily you can subtract that out but this is a skill that is is not so simple to develop. I mean, this is you. Someone going into this would go. This is going to take some time. I'm going to have to read many books. I'm going to have to read many articles by different authors, and I'm going to sort of intuit how to do this, how to figure out people's biases. I think you're overcomplicating it. I mean, if okay. you re- read Mount Improbable, Climbing Mount Improbable by Richard Dawkins, and whenever he, whenever he makes any metaphysical claims, you just ignore him. I see. Okay. So. <laughs> but now what about this concern kind of back to earlier that like, why should we trust Dawkins on biology when he has such an obvious ideological axe to grind religiously? Well, because he doesn't always talk about those things. In your mind, it doesn't cloud his ability to do biology. It does. It, 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 how thick is the cloud? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's very, very thick at all. When he's really doing science. Yeah. Yeah, and and he is primarily a popular writer. I mean, even The Selfish Gene, that's another highly recommended book. The Selfish Gene was written in 76, thereabouts, and landmark book, landmark, you know, popularizer of evolutionary principles and discredited in numerous ways. You know, he he proposed meme theory in that book, which is just gone essentially as a science, nowhere. I mean, it's just a useful concept. But uh, And he characterizes genes as selfish. He characterizes bodies as robots that transport genes around, all discredited, but they're known quantities. So mm. if you were to read that book. So it's still valuable to go, I'm going to read this discredited book, 
but I'll get the language that people do use to talk about these things, and then I'll read some other book that tells me what's been done since then. Is that what you're saying? Kind of. I mean, but there's 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 plenty in the book which is informative about just biology in general. I see. So even though his the novel theories that he proposed in that book have been discredited, but most of the background data is accurate. Yes. yes. Right. So what are the most common things that popularizers of science will stretch on or get wrong? Or what are the most common limits that they overstep? It's the totalizing and that they'll summarize too much, you know, the history of, of an idea. Hmm. And they'll probably triumphalize the scientific uh, method. I read uh, in Robert Bella's book, Religion and Human Evolution, he says, the best thing you can do with a science book is read the last chapter because scientists all of a sudden give themselves enormous room to make <laughs> metaphysical claims yes. and much bigger claims than they're qualified to make. And they almost always do it at the end of the book. That sounds right to me. Of like a looking forward. So you could maybe, if you're reading a, a popular science book, you could you could check out that last chapter and go, okay, this is the stuff to hold very lightly. Mm. And the more that someone's giving you a table of data, the, the more serious to take that. Does that sound right? Yes, yes. So be careful of the science writer's tendency to turn things into grand narratives. Yes, and uh, yeah, the the idea of, of spotting that transition, I think that's a that's a very very good one. I would I would not discourage people from just for fun picking up journal articles. You know, mm. people do write in English. Yeah, uh, yeah, and they do they do start off with abstracts and, and yeah, which and are write, written in plain English yeah. and write conclusions. Yeah, how easy is it for politics or ideological commitments to creep in at various levels of this sort of scientific process i would assume the further back you get to the person in the lab coat doing the data that it would be the least amount and that the 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 blogger or the whomever would be the most likely to be ideological is that accurate so while the sciences are susceptible to some cultural influence all the way through from beginning to end i'm not in the long run worried about that because there is a built-in antidote to that problem within the structure itself. There are very few sort of cultural structures that consciously mm. are aware that they are fallible and need to shed errors constantly. Well, I guess it's kind of like the free press, right? Yes. The free press is an antidote to certain kinds of government corruption. And like we saw with the autism study, the antidote was there all along in the scientific community and it eventually was discredited. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a, several ways to get notoriety in funding. The one is to have a, a brilliant original idea. The other is to tear someone else down. <laughs> yeah, right. I've heard recently a couple of people say that basically the softer the science, the more likely scientists are to be irreligious. And the more theoretical the science, like the the physicists or the the more esoteric the kind of science, or maybe the harder the science, you might say, mm. the more mathematical the science, mm -hmm. you actually find greater incidence of theists and practicing scientists who are more open to God and stuff like that. Do you have any thoughts on why that is, or have, have you seen that to be true? I don't doubt that, actually. Yeah. Social scientists who are doing surveys of real people, you know, they're... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Social scientists being the, being the softest scientists. The, yes, that's sciences, right. Yeah. Or, and as you get into 
closer and closer to physics, then you can't avoid, it's part of your job description, to consider these really more theoretical ideas, these more foundational metaphysical ideas. And so you are sort of given permission to do that. And there is no physicist out there that doesn't wrestle with quantum mechanics. Every time a new physicist pops out of the system, they have had to encounter a part of their field that is just unfathomable, mysterious, and as yet unresolved. And uh, the closer you are to a physicist, I think that would make more sense. You're open to these more um, metaphysical and then ultimately spiritual questions. And I think especially of what is called the apophatic tradition in theology, which Mm. is really big in Eastern Orthodoxy and, and less so, but still around in Catholicism and Protestantism, which is that when you really get down to God, you you can't say anything. Right. right. And uh, there's a sense in which maybe when you really get down to physics, you can't say anything. That you you the the language we have, we we actually know that it is not accurate. You, you can't say it. The thing you say, you know, is false, and there's no way thing you can say right. that is true. The, the if you want to say the thing that's most accurate, you don't say anything. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> to, to, to say more would be to actually start to erode the truthfulness of what you're saying. You see a deep consonance between the scientific process and a Christian posture towards life. We talk about that a little bit? I do. So I've never been a working research scientist. I, I've hung around in those spheres and I've attended numerous scientific meetings. But my first answer will be just one of, of, of just sort of raw emotion. I enjoy that environment. A good example would be the AAAS meetings, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. You have people from all over the US, all over the world, meeting to share the results on just a myriad of subjects. And there is just a vibe there that's just keen to get going, to learn more about this interesting world that we live in. It's like a bracing slap to the face. Like, here we go. Yeah. We're, we're going to do this directly. And, we're not dancing around it. You know, so there are many egos, obviously. Uh, right. And yet there is this understood sense of a group humility, maybe the right word. You know, there is, if I can just move up to the idealized world again, there, there's one thing a scientist looks forward to, which is getting an aha mo- moment when they finally fit together the, da- the data into some sort of synthetic view and right behind that, they'd love to be shown to be desperately, desperately wrong. Because hmm. that would mean there's something even better. Yeah, yeah. And not only is there something better, it doesn't matter if someone else gets there first. but Because they would have played their role. There was a kind of a group. Because their paper is the thing that got the person to write the other paper where they found a better answer. Yeah, yeah. So, so there, there is sort of a social consciousness that comes from that. That does sound very idealized. Yeah. <laughs> well, but the, the, I, I get it. I, I feel that. You I, get that vibe I, when I you're there. I get that vibe. When the but people the, are working. But more, yeah. more concretely than that, they have somehow, the scientific minds that have gone before now, have set up this actual social structure, which is built upon concepts which are you know, very reminiscent to Christian anthropology. I mean, the the idea that, that we are self-deceiving creatures is built in. 
the idea, right, which is a very Christian idea, very Christian idea that that we are fallen, that we have mm-hmm. our own motives, and those are going to cloud our judgment. Very we, similar to the assumptions that are built into the United States Constitution. Yes, yes. That, peop, that branches will seek more power, and these are the checks on that. And, yeah, yeah. Because that's what people are like. Uh huh. And there is, and this is where the peer review comes in, the yeah. idea that you're going to have to pass master and you're going to have to you know, explain your reasoning and your arguments and your methodologies. It's actually very close to repentance. The idea that data could come along that force you to publicly, with a head kind of held high, hmm. is say, here it is, I'm wrong, I'm going to change direction. These these strike me as sort of resonant with yeah. uh, Christian Christian concepts. Scientific evidence for Christianity. Mm-hmm. What do you, how do you interpret that phrase? What would it even mean to talk about that? We can answer that question, but I think people are typically asking a different question. Okay, what they, do you they, think they asking? take science to be synonymous with credible or reasoned or wise or supportable. Hmm. And those are uh, that's a big long list of, of separate questions. And you would say there is there are reasons to be a Christian. Oh yeah. But the question is, are there scientific reasons to be a Christian? Yeah, and and so if we go back to characteristics of a scientific claim that are mathematical in nature, measurable and verifiable, and hopefully falsifiable, there are precious few ways of getting at Christian claims from a scientific point of view. I can't think of one in the Bible. Uh, Well, sometimes I think of it the other way. I think of, this is not necessarily to prove my Christianity is true, but maybe to help me come up with a more consonant Christianity. I do think about claims that could be scientifically falsifiable. Yes. And then I think if they have been falsified, then I, I should modify my belief. Does that sound right? Yeah, that, that's right. That that's a that's a. I think that is the best way of looking at it. That that scientific claims can rule out some questions, some dimensions from serious consideration. For example, you know, one of the most fundamental concepts in, in science is uh, conservation laws. Like you can't have energy uh, matter popping up out of nowhere with for no consequence. Things like you know turning water into wine. That sounds like a violation of conservation laws. And so that's that's where you have to either pull back and say, "Well, God is sovereign." There is, there is. I mean, it's it's a dangerous answer to deploy because it opens you up to to just everything. Now, if you say God can do anything, and therefore I win the argument, but it, it, I think it's fruitful to ask that middle question. Like, given that the conservation laws seem to be in play, how on earth? What does that do to these claims of? walking on water and turning water into wine, that sort of thing. Counter-argument would just be, look, the number of miracles that it's important for a Christian to believe are quite few, and they all pretty much center around God on earth in a human person. Yeah, oh yeah, there there are, if you start off assuming that in order to defend the accounts in the Bible, that you need a scientific, you know, description of what went on. I see. you're You're in trouble. Right. You're, you're saying a more a more responsible thing would be to say there is not scientific proof for Christ's miracles. That is a thing we take on faith because we believe that God is uniquely present in Christ. And so a little bit of second law of thermodynamics being, you know, changed here is not a big deal for him. Something like that. Yeah. And and I think the, the part that's satisfying to me about this is most of these claims can 
pull back pretty rapidly to a reaffirmation of the sovereignty of God. And you're on sort of solid ground there, but you're on solid metaphysical ground. You're not on scientific grounds. Does the Bible make scientific claims? Interpret that however you want. Well, yeah, if I'm going to look for numerical, you know, equations or no, I'm not going to find those. Uh, What we have to do to answer your question at all is pull back on that grade to say that there are classes of questions that have more scientific smell to them than others. I mean, some people would say, well, Genesis sure seems to say God created in six days, but you would say that's not what Genesis is claiming. It's not actually making a scientific claim in the text about the length of time. Of all the things Genesis is saying, Genesis is saying the uh, actual period of time seems to fade away to almost nothing, I would say. And I think that John Walton at Wheaton, a very conservative Hebrew scholar, would concur. He, He says, looking at the text alone, the text gives me no indication that they're making any kind of scientific claims about that stuff. Yeah, I do like his writing very much. I, I I find that makes perfect sense to me. The only little caveat you can add is that they didn't have a distinction between scientific claims and non-scientific claims. So you can't go back to that period of time and say, are you going to put this in the non-scientific right. category? Because that those, that distinction didn't exist. But that's probably the most helpful way of thinking about it anyway. Yeah. is to just understand the worldview of a reader or hearer of Genesis. I do agree. And this is – now we're getting further and further away from the Reformation. Hopefully we can pull back some of that. You know, that is, certainly my own home church, there was still this, this idea that any questioning of whether an individual has everything they need to interpret Scripture, that, that would raise eyebrows. But to get the full final – value from scripture, I think we can at least say you can't get there until, for example, you understand the authors to whom the writer was writing at that time. Okay, now we're going to transition to some of Andy's particular questions. Now, I don't want to get too in the weeds on climate change because that (laughs) is its own episode, but let's consider Andy's position. It's definitely getting warmer, but it's unclear how much warmer it's getting, and it is Unclear if that is all or mainly because of carbon emissions or other human activities, and how do we know that? Do you think that that his position is correct, or is there quite a bit more consensus on that? And if so, where would we look if we wanted to research this more? Well, when you're talking about the climate, you know, and how it's changing, you, you you're talking. This is a global question, and. There are very few questions you can ask of the entire planet mm. which, which come down to short, crisp answers. And perhaps that isn't surprising. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. If you find you're reading an article that has been an interpretation of an interpretation of an interpretation of, of, a, of, of some of data, a study, yeah. then find one that's closer to the source. Oh, when it comes to climate change data, that's an ongoing research area, and I would trust the larger organizations that have more checks and balances. I don't see any reason not to trust NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency. I'll put a link to that website in the show notes. I would trust the principal journals in that field, trust NOAA. The, it's a government agency, but there's just enough people involved that I think it'd be very hard to perpetrate any kind of fraud there. The people okay. who send 
aircraft into hurricanes and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. N- the, the NASA of the climate. Yeah, yeah. Another question of Andy's. Well, this is me kind of trying to corner Andy into, <laughs> which is what I'm always trying to do, as we mentioned in our chat. I'm trying to corner him into more enthusiasm for science. So Andy believes in vaccines. He believes in them because they have shown themselves to be good. You know, polio is basically gone. What else, since vaccines are true, what else is like true because vaccines are true? Like what should Andy, a firm believer in vaccines, also accept? If you accept vaccines and their effectiveness, then you are perilously close to the rest of contemporary biology. Which would include Darwin's theory, biological descent, all of it. Yeah, there's nobody working on vaccines who doesn't take Darwinian evolution as a backdrop. And in point of fact, they study that's becoming much more relevant, important now as uh, superbugs emerge, yeah. for which we will perhaps develop uh, new vaccines and have to get ahead of. Uh, that only makes sense when you view the evolution, the development, if you like, of these superbugs from an, from an evolutionary point of view. Which is random genetic mutation to, to become more adaptive, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're seeing it in front of our eyes. There are adaptations to sanitizers, that these bugs have no business developing immunity to were it not for the fact that we cover them in soap all day, all day long. <laughs> hmm. Okay, so now I want to get Andy to accept the age of the universe and the Earth. So what is it that he already believes, that he's very confident about, that is correlated so closely with the age of the universe and the age and or the age of the Earth? There's no working physicist or material scientist that doesn't start off with that as a backdrop these days. If you want to understand the makeup of the elements that we see around us, the presence of uh, and the various abundance of various elements, this is all accounted for in terms of stellar evolution, which can be explained in other ways. But number one best theory is through generations of uh, supernovae from the beginning, which can't happen in a few thousand years that, that we have any explanation for. So the old age counts for that. What would have to be true in order for the universe to be less than 10,000 years old? Like what are – just list some of the things that we would have to be completely wrong about. For the universe to be less than 10,000 years would require a massive integrated conspiracy. Uh, you can, I think, imagine on a case-by-case basis number of things you could do, like you'd bury the fossils or you would arrange – I'm not sure if you could arrange for flooding that would – do that you mean a conspiracy where people literally make floods happen <laughs> or put fossils in the ground well yeah yeah I, i'm, I'm this, assuming that i can't how else would you do that because how do you do di- i mean dinosaurs is a tough one i yeah, guess yeah what about the light from stars what would have to be true for that light to be only ten thousand years old for the light to be that young you'd have to to invoke some new physics, which is in play. that There are ideas within the young Earth community. If they turn out to be true, that would tell us, that would lead to whole different physics, and we could test that pretty readily. So the universe just is old, as far as we can tell. In order to not say that, we need some simple integrated concept that would you know, solve a number of problems simultaneously and could happen, but I just can't conceive of it now. So if I understand Andy correctly, 
and I've, I'm kind of beating up on him now, but he really, he is a good friend and he knows <laughs> that I'm not. He feels that a lot of the questions surrounding the difference between young earth creationists and old earth people or Christian theists, Christian evolutionists, carbon dating, other forms of dating. He feels like a lot of that stuff is not that settled. Mm-hmm. For instance, he described carbon dating as being, quote, loosely held. Does he understand that correctly, or is he just not looked into this stuff for a while? Which he did admit that he hasn't looked into it for a while. So we're not going to dock in points, but... This sounds like one of those talking points. This is literally what I was taught in Christian high school. Ah, yeah, so yeah. So this is very familiar to me. Okay. It is, it, was, it is a talking point that's stuck in my head for 20 years. Yeah, this is a good one, actually, because it's not wrong, and yet it most definitely is. The <laughs> So uh, carbon dating... Is not one thing. It's not loosely held. It is. It is a technique that is severely limited. We could say this is probably what he meant. For example, the timescales it's reliable for run to tens of thousands of years at most. And so, what you can do is say carbon dating is unreliable, and therefore the age of the universe is back in question. But it's reliable up to twenty or thirty thousand years old. Yeah, a bit more than that. A bit more and than that's that. quite well attested. Oh, yeah. And, and it's, it's still used all the time. The, the bigger point to make is just because this one dating method has limitations doesn't mean the entire history question is, is open. There are numerous dating methods. What are some other dating methods? Uh, well, using different uh, radioactive elements. I, I'm, I'm not an expert. I mean, geochronology is the, is the field. While it is fair to say that carbon dating has limitations it is only one feather in the big quiver of of chronology and i don't think there's any doubt about the you know given any sample i think there are means to date that accurately Agreed. all the way back to to the beginning of the earth which is you know four billion wow. plus years old so yeah that that's an interesting i think i was told that same thing too that karma dating is is limited too limited to be of use yeah, one of the talking points I heard, which I, I now realize was in super bad faith, was they claim this fossil is a million years old, but carbon dating only goes 40,000 years. Uh-huh. Of course, they're not using carbon dating to claim the million right. years, right? Yeah, that's bad. That's just straight up lying. That's yeah. that's not – that's red herring. That's straw man. That is logical fallacy. It's and lying. It's lying. Lying in the service of a perceived good, yeah. Yep. What is the worry about sending kids out to college with sort of young earth creationist or, I don't know, skepticism about science from the pulpit or from Christian teachers, and then they go into the real world or they go to a secular university or whatever? What's at stake there? I think it depends how it's done. If it's done in good faith with a you know fair representation, there's nothing wrong with it at all. If you send people out as I was with false data, they're going to get sent back with a tail between their legs. It's an exercise I haven't done, but I I would imagine it would be possible to take a, a very mainstream young earth creationist view and separate out the questions that are still legitimate, you know, open-ended questions and say, here are the concerns I have, show me the data, and it would be and you couldn't respond. And there would be a conversation that would happen. And the response would be, I can't answer these questions, but these questions that are related, I can. And after, at some point, your question becomes rather small compared to the bigger story I'm telling you. 
and and then <laughs> you have to choose not to be a young earth creationist anymore but but you've done it by honest means it's it's actually kind of how i think about theological training of younger people uh, and i've heard this a lot i didn't make this up but a, a distinguishing between it's not about giving young christians the right answers but teaching them to ask the right questions yeah, it seems yeah. very similar to that. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. If you have a Christian kid who's interested in science, then you want to grow in them the capacity for serious inquiry, mm-hmm. uh, for for serious study of the world that God created, rather than turn them into a good little missionary disciple, talking point repeater before mm. they can even understand the implications of what they're saying. Yeah, this is what's so insidious about this insight that people of all kinds are self-deceiving, you know, self-aggrandizing, grasping. This is very, very true. It's a very Christian thing to say, yeah. What's sad is when you grasp that truth and point all that venom out at, you know, beginning research scientists or graduate students and say, I know you're looking through that microscope and you think you see something, but let me tell you, you don't. Because there's a tiny, 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 tiny grain of truth and there are many yeah. people earlier in their careers, especially the scientists, who are not ready at all to hear that there may be any kind of sort of social critique of sure. their biases. And they need to hear that. But I don't think it would be helpful for a Christian to say, you can't trust your eyeballs because you're a bad person, you know. And I trust me because I'm, I'm saved. It wouldn't work. Last question for you. And I really don't know the answer to this. I'm really curious what you think. Just your average college-educated Christian, okay, reasonably intelligent, but not called into the world of science. What ought just a college-educated Christian to know, to be familiar with, or or at, at bare minimum, what ought that Christian to avoid unnecessarily passing on to their kids? You know what I'm saying? Mm. In terms of scientific literacy, what's a good thing to shoot for? Recognizing that a affinity for the sciences comes at no cost, you know, uh, that the, as I tried to convey this sort of vibe you might get uh, if you if you join a, a research team or, or some of these, the scientific meetings, there is a, an anxiousness to, and an excitement to, to learn about creation that is noble and that, as I say, is in, has some resonances with many Christian views and there are many people, myself among them, who have been very worried about it and, and to the best of my ability, looked at the question honestly and found no perils to be found reconciling contemporary, humble scientific conclusions with Christian theology. In terms of educating our kids or the junior hires or high schoolers in our youth groups or whatever, what, what's the most dangerous thing we could do? What's the worst thing we could teach them? I suppose the worst thing you could teach uh, young people is that it is a bad thing to ask questions and that the only people who have the right answers to questions are the people in this room. If a good idea comes from somewhere, it's a good idea. If it's an idea that leads to some knowledge of God's creation, doesn't matter who came up with it. A great deal of our scientific heritage has some roots to the Islamic world, can't deny it. And they're good ideas then. Algebra is, is still a good idea, even if we don't like the homework. The way I think of it is, if we tell young kids who are interested in science, who have some affinity, 
well, it's either creation science or the Bible is false, then we're setting them up for massive failure. And indeed, a lot of people leave the church for that reason. Yeah, that's that's. I'm afraid it's a symptom of me being very far down the road that I don't think of these obvious things. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you would agree. I would agree. Thank you guys for listening. A huge thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing the main um, interview with Adrian. And if you want to hire him for podcast editing, he is available for hire. And his email address is in the show notes. Also in the show notes, counterbalance.org which is Adrian's website, and biologos.org, theistic evolutionists uh, funded by the Templeton Foundation that both Adrian and I think do a lot of good work. We'll see you guys next week, and thank you for putting up with my lack of a listener question due to this sickness. <laughs>